Hello everyone, and may the 4th be with you. This is episode 155 of the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I am Manny Manuel. So, we are beginning our prequels miniseries, episode 1, Star Wars The Phantom Menace. This is a movie that I've been excited to talk about for a while. It's got a lot of history behind it, a lot of lore. Uh, we will have a lot of fun talking about um, a lot of the historical context, I think, of the movie itself, as well as the uh, the <laughs> the masterpiece <laughs> that, uh, that George Lucas created back in 1999. Manny is sitting stone-faced across from me on Skype, as always. Manny, how you doing? I'm good. Good. Are you? You, do, you, do, you don't sound good. I can't believe you use the word masterpiece in this film in the same sentence. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> um, so if people want to hear from us on social media, Manny, or if they want to reach out to us themselves, where can they do that? They can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. They can email us at sammannymoviepodcast at gmail.com. They can find us on Facebook at the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast. And they can find us wherever they get their podcasts because they're listening to us now. I don't think we even reached the 60-second mark of the podcast without me making you thin-lipped <laughs> over this movie. <laughs> ah. already, already pissed you off. Getting cl- uh, No. 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 We're going to get to that into our pre-discussion on Star sure. Wars. Okay, I, I look forward to it a little bit. But, pr- uh, but prior to that... Prior to that, we got some we got some business to attend. Yeah, to. got some stuff we've been watching. Sam, why don't you lead us off this time? Whoa, I start us off. Yeah, why not? Oh, must be a special occasion or something. You'd think it would be. <laughs> um, I regret to inform you that I watched three movies this week, and the first one that I watched was just a real fucking tragedy. I am not happy that I watched this movie. Um, it is, I wanted to watch a 2021 release. Um, and, uh, I was, I was hanging out with Emma, Emma one day on our day off and she said, Oh, you know what? This movie on Netflix, uh, Seth Rogen just tweeted about it and said it was really funny. Oh no. So, uh, so why don't we check it out? Just, we both went in relatively blind. It's a movie called bad trip. Oh no. It's on Netflix. Um, and it stars Eric Andre, uh, Michaela Conlin, and Lil Ray Howery, and I guess Tiffany Haddish as well. Um, the plot, this mix of a scripted buddy comedy road trip movie and a real hidden camera prank show follows the outrageous misadventures of two buds stuck in a rut who embark on a cross-country road trip to New York City. The storyline sets up shocking real pranks. Manny, are you aware of the movie Bad Trip? Only by the forced trailer I'm forced to watch whenever I log into Netflix. Yeah, um... I wouldn't have expected you to like this movie, even if I hadn't seen it before. I would have watched the trailer and been like, that's not for Manny. After having watched it, uh, not only is it not for you, it's not for me. It is really bad. Um, If you are a fan of the format of movies like, um, I'm going to say Borat, but not not as good as Borat. Uh, I I find Borat funny, personally. Um, The same sort of style where people don't know they're in a movie and they're sort of being pranked or even made fun of. Um, or th- I think Johnny Knoxville from, um, 
what was that show from Jackass had a movie similar to this called Bad Grandpa, if Bad. I if I recall. Yeah, I think you're right. In my mind, it was Dirty Grandpa, but I think Bad Grandpa's well, right. There was one with Robert De Niro and Zac Efron, and one with Johnny Knoxville that came out like almost the same time. One was Bad Grandpa, one was Dirty Grandpa, and I can oh. never remember which is which. Okay. Um. Anyway, that's besides the point. Uh, Bad Trip is it's bad <laughs> uh it's it's not funny at all a lot a lot of the pranks really miss the mark i shouldn't say it's not funny at all i definitely got a couple chuckles out of it um but it is a loosely structured it is a movie where they clearly had an idea for a number of pranks that they wanted to pull in real life and then they just constructed a plot and a movie around it this could have easily been a web series this could have easily just been like an adult-oriented, just-for-laughs sort of idea. They, they could have just released it like that, but instead they decided they wanted to write this really bad plot around this movie. Uh, what was I? There was a movie I wanted to compare this to as far as the plot. It's like a ripoff of, I don't know, basically every road trip movie ever. Dumb and Dumber. And I know that's a movie you already aren't super huge on, Manny. But this is like a worse, um, more... This is like Dumb and Dumber if it was trying to be edgy and like uh, and, and sort of cutting edge and it had Eric Andre in it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen any of Eric Andre's show. Um, he does have a couple of good bits. He, it's basically a talk show in this style. It's a talk show where celebrities come on thinking they're on a legitimate talk show. And then he just intentionally tanks the interview, has terrible things happen and, and yada, yada, yada. And it's very cringe, very cringy. Um, and it's just not my style of humor. Um, he is not funny at all in this movie. A lot of the jokes revolve around him either being naked in public or um, there's a scene at a zoo where I just wanted to crawl out of my skin um, because the prank is he goes into the gorilla cage and the gorilla fucks him in the ass. And that's the prank. And that that's the whole bit. It's just, hey, this guy in a gorilla costume is fucking Eric Andre. And uh, it has a 60 Metascore, Manny. It has a 60. What? It's got a 60 Metascore. And uh, I don't know if anything I just said makes you want to watch this movie. Um, I'm sure there are people listening who will enjoy this movie. I'm sure it has its audience. It must. Yeah. Otherwise. T-Bone. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not very good. Um, I gave it a two on Letterboxd, but listening to myself talk about it, I think it's a one. I think it's I think it's not very good. Never going to watch it again. Would never recommend it to anyone. It's not funny. I never thought I would say this, Manny, but Seth Rogen had led me astray. Wow. I, uh, Speechless. Number one. <laughs> number one, I'm, I'm sad that you had to watch this. Me too. Best part about it. As with the last movie I gave a one, Eight Crazy Nights, is that it's under an hour and a half. It's an hour 26. 126. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. You gave this a one? Did I hear you right? Yeah, it's a one. Holy shit. Yep. Nothing nothing I liked about it. I, I think I think I laughed a couple of times, but I can't for the life of me tell you where those moments were in the movie. You giving this a one actually makes me want to watch it. Because <laughs> I I can't think of a single thing you would like about this movie, honestly. And that's, that's not to say there aren't things people might like about this movie. Just you specifically, I can't see you liking it at all. I, when I saw the trailer, there was nothing that led me to believe I was going to like this movie. No, I don't and want I, I don't want to watch this movie because I think I'm going to like it. I want to watch this movie so it can be a double winner for worst film of the year next at our next year Sampas. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, this is a, an early front runner for for worst picture. Uh, as far as our samples are concerned. If I'm not mistaken, according to your incredibly paced that you, this is actually would also be in your top three movies of 2021, though. Yeah, this is top two. <laughs> 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 this is only the second 2021 movie I've seen. Okay, the let's... This uh, is uh, We Care A Lot. Oh, shit. Yeah, the only two I've seen. All right, let's get off that. Fuck it. I don't yeah, even want to talk about... Yeah, that trip is a bad trip. It wow. Is titled... Best thing I can say about it is that it's titled adequately. Wow, a one. Um, so that's that. I also watched, uh, w- took a trip back to the year 2019 to watch the sequel to a kid's movie that I shockingly enjoyed. And not because the movie was bad, but because it had no business being as good as it was. Ooh. That was the 2019 Lego Movie 2. Okay, hold on. So I, I, I worded that in a confusing way, didn't I? You did. I'm I'm assuming that, that you enjoyed like the Lego, the first Lego movie, because it had no business being as good as it was. Correct. Okay. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right. Lego movie had no business being as good as it was, so I was excited to check out Lego movie 2. It was pretty good. It wasn't wasn't fantastic. Um, it's written by uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, directed by Mike Mitchell. It's been five years since everything was awesome, and the citizens are facing a huge new threat. Lego Duplo invaders from outer space, wrecking everything faster than they can rebuild. Um... It kind of fails to recapture the uh, the sp- the spirit is the wrong word. Fails to recapture the frenetic energy of the first one, I think, um, and fails to capture the soul of it. Um, one of the things that was so surprising about the first movie is that it basically should have been a glorified commercial, and it really was. It's just a glorified commercial for Lego. And it was it told such a poignant message about uh, not growing old and about how nobody's special, but everyone is. And there's a lot of different layers to it. This one uh, also tried to tell a message about playing nice together. In my opinion, it kind of fell a little bit flat. Um, Chris Pratt is still fun as uh, as Emmett. He's still doing some good voice work. Um, Will Arnett, Elizabeth Banks, uh, the entire voice cast, really. I mean, they have they have a, a ton of voice actors in this movie that are doing great work. Um, and they're all they're all giving it their all. Uh, Tiffany Haddish as uh, Queen Whatever a Wannabe. <laughs> uh, she's one of the highlights of the movie. She has a couple of good songs. There's a couple of musical numbers in this that are which are excellent. Uh, she has a, a song early in the movie about how she definitely promises to not be evil. She's she she sings about how she's the least evil person ever, and she would never get up to any evil plots to the point where the song itself becomes suspicious about how specific it is. Um, yeah, Lego Movie 2 has a couple of great moments, but I don't have really anything exceptional to say about it. It was middle of the road, failed to recapture the soul of the first movie, but also wasn't offensively bad in any sort of way. It's pretty easy three. I haven't seen this. No? No. Yeah, I mean, worth checking out. If you like the first one, give I did. it a go. I, I'm with you. The first one had no business being as good as it was. Yeah. And I was just like, holy fuck, this is good. This one fails to recapture. It fails to reach those heights again. Okay. But... But still pretty good. All right. Lego Movie 2 gets a three. Um, I regret to inform you, Manny, that I'm pretty sure you don't like this last movie I'm going to talk about, but it's one of my all-time... Uh, is it one of my all-time favorite comedies? It'd be in the conversation. I'd be willing to have that talk. Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Holy fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Ron Burgundy is San Diego's top-rated newsman in the male-dominated broadcasting of the 1970s, but that's all about the change for Ron and his cronies when an ambitious woman is hired as a new anchor. 
I will say on this watch, it, this is one I watched a ton uh, when I was, you know, 13 to 16 years old. I watched this regularly. Um, and this is probably my first watch, and I would guess about five years or so, four years or so. Um, and it's... I didn't get all the same laughs that I once did. Part of that is that I basically have this movie memorized at this point. It is uh, it's tattooed on my brain. Every little moment and every little gag and every every everything is just tattooed on me. With that being said, it's it's still very funny. I know Manny does not like Will Ferrell. I am personally a fan, and the Ron Burgundy character is one that I laugh at time and time again. Um, and the highlights of the movie, in my opinion, are his interactions with his crew, Paul Rudd, Steve Carell, David Koechner, as uh, Brian Brick and Champ, respectively, um, are really funny. There's the, I mean, I, I can't say anything about this movie generally because its charm is in the individual moments. And a lot of those individual moments are so famous that it, it doesn't even really bear repeating things like the brawl things like uh the skyrockets and flight scene where they're all singing together um the charm of this movie comes from the improvised nature of a lot of the dialogue and from the just from the hilarity of will ferrell paul Rudd, and steve carell if you like those actors you'll love this movie it's the best version of all of those people if you don't like those people you won't like this movie that's about all there is to it i loved this movie growing up i still like it a lot there's some aspects of it that haven't aged well. Um, in particular, some of the jokes made about Christina Applegate are a little bit cringy now, but she's still uh, she's still really funny herself in it. It's pretty clear in a lot of the scenes with Christina Applegate and Will Ferrell that she's just not as comfortable improvising as a lot of the other people in this movie. She doesn't appear to have that muscle um, worked out quite as much as these other guys. But uh, overall, it's, a, uh, it's still a, a hilarious movie that I think um, a lot of people will find uh, something to enjoy in um, other than Manny. So I, I feel comfortable giving this a four. If you asked me three days ago, I would have given it an easy, easy five. But uh, I, I think it's still a solid four for me. Wow. Um, you sound shocked. I'm shocked that it dropped a point. Yeah? I am. Yeah. I, I, I think it's uh, it's still very funny. I tried to rewatch this. Mm -hmm. I when? got about, I don't know, last year. Yeah. I got about 45 minutes in. I'm like, nope. Uh-uh. You shut it off? I did. You you never shut off movies. I know. You shut off Anchorman? I did. Oh, my God. I did. I did. If, if I hadn't seen it, I would have continued on. But I'd already seen it. And I'm like, this is not for me. I'm like, I, I, I'm not in the mood. I wanted... I remember exactly what it was. I was in the mood for something kind of fun. I know how much everybody loves this movie. And I'm like, I'm going to give it another try. And I was just like, I'm not having fun. I don't feel like wasting this fun mood I'm in. And so I ended up watching something else that I did enjoy. I still plan on revisiting this movie and giving it an honest sit through. The problem is, is right now I'm having so much fun watching movies for the podcast, taking care of these chores slash challenges I've given myself to beat my last year's stuff. 
that I just don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. I think you may find this movie to be a chore. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see. I, I do want to give this. I, I what I really want to do is I want to give this movie a fair chance. So what I need to do is I think what I'm going to do is once I'm in, once I, at the rare occasion I get in the mood where I'm like, I want something fun and silly. I'm going to give this a chance. Cause if I'm in that mood, I can give it that chance, but I can't be in the mood where like, I want to watch a movie and put on Anchorman. That's not going to happen. You, you must know who the director of Anchorman is, right? Isn't it Adam McKay? Yeah. It's Adam McKay. Yeah. I, I forget that fact often. And every time I go back to it, I'm like, Oh yeah, Adam McKay made this. Yeah. Oscar, I believe he was Oscar nominated for both the Big Short and Vice, right? Big Short for sure. Hmm. Oh, he's won an Oscar. What has he won an Oscar for? Screenplay? Be my guess. Uh, nominee, winner. Yeah, screenplay for Big Short. Look at you go. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he was nominated for director for Big Short and as well as... Uh, as well as Vice, he so. got uh, he got an Academy Award nomination for Vice. Yes, he did. Wow, I don't agree with that. Yeah, both for directing and for the screenplay, and of course for Best Picture. I could understand the screenplay nomination for Vice. Hmm. I feel like I could understand the directing nom nom more than the screenplay. Hmm. No, not you. Hmm. Yeah, I I didn't understand the uh, the the win for the Big Short. I I was not a fan of the way that movie was directed. I got I got it like i, I understood yeah, but he why didn't, he won, he, I guess. he didn't win directing for for, for the big short oh sorry won. he won screenplay right i was i wasn't I, I remember being confused on the nomination for uh for uh, him directing the big short just i felt like it was a little bit over directed like that joke i like to repeat often about the best editing really being most editing it didn't feel like best directing it felt like most directing he was just doing lots of stuff lots of different shots and pans and cuts and you know little segments of breaking the fourth wall it just felt like there was a lot of things happening directorially in the movie but it didn't necessarily make it good so i was kind of confused about that hmm. i really enjoyed that movie yeah oh me too i, I think it's a, a fine movie i just the directing on that year was a head scratcher for me any hoodles that's neither here nor there um anchorman is a classic don't listen to man he's got to stick up his butt <laughs> it's a four <laughs> I I I've told I I I literally just said I know how much everybody loves this movie. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> you know what does surprise me though, actually, and I'll, I don't think I'll ever get past this is that you like old school and not this one. It feels like they're on the same level, sort of comedically. They're operating in the same comedy space almost. I don't know. Are they? Maybe not. I guess Anchorman, like I did just say, it does rely a little bit more heavily or a lot more heavily on uh, improvisation. So, so maybe not. Anyway, that's all. That's all that I have to talk about. Manny, uh, why don't you talk about some movies that you watched and probably like better than Anchorman? Uh, yeah, I probably liked all of these better than Anchorman. Oh, wait, no, not this first one. Oh, I'm excited then. Okay, so I revisited a movie that I hadn't seen in a very long time that a lot of people my age consider one of the classics. Uh, and that's the uh, teen comedy romance uh, Pretty in Pink starring... <clears throat> Molly Ringwald, John Cryer, um, and uh, Andrew McCarthy. Uh, a poor girl must choose between the affections of dating her childhood sweetheart or a rich but sensitive playboy. And actually, I want to uh, correct this plot right here because a poor girl must choose between the affections of dating her childhood sweetheart. He is not 
her childhood sweetheart. She has actually no romantic affections towards her childhood best friend. He pines over her, mm. but she has always seen him as her best friend. I've so, never seen this, but I'm already cringing. Um, it's written by John Hughes, who is my generation's genius. And I was looking forward to this. I, I was really looking forward to this because it's, only, it's an hour 37. Uh, John Hughes films are films that I grew up with and love, but this is one of the few ones of his that he only wrote it. He didn't direct it. But this is one of the few ones of his I didn't watch on the regular. And so I was excited to revisit this one, and uh, it's not good. It's uh, it was a not that it was a tough sit through, but the best friend is played by John Cryer, who is obviously known for uh, what's that fucking show he did with Charlie Sheen? Two and a half men. Two and a half men. Um, Never watched it. Neither have I. (laughs) I he's obviously made a gajillion dollars off of that show. Mm-hmm. In here, he's supposed to be the eccentric, funny, cool best, fr- not cool, fun best friend that you root for. Um, I found him annoying. And while he does have a couple really cool moments, I, I just, I, I just wasn't a fan. And the other thing is, um. Her other option, uh, the rich, sensitive playboy, uh, played by Andrew McCarthy, uh, he's not much of a better choice. And he does some really fucking super douchey and dick move things. Molly Ringwald is actually a really great character uh, in this movie. Her character, uh, is it Andy? Shit. Andy? Yeah, it is. Hoo-hoo, I was right. Just hmm. sad because I watched this last night. Um, I like her. She's... Uh, a little progressive for a woman of the 80s in that she, while she does pine over uh, Andrew's character, Jack, nope, sorry, Blaine? Uh, yeah, Blaine. Um, she's not love-struck, and she is her own person, and she's very independent, and she is bullied. <clears throat> she is She's a poor girl. And she is bullied and picked on by the rich girls uh, at her school, which I'd forgotten one of them was my girlfriend, Gina, Gina Gershon. Gershon. I was just looking at that. Yeah. <laughs> she, I think she only has like two or three scenes. But when I saw her, I'm like, oh, I love you. Um, she stands up for herself. And in a lot of these teen movies, uh, when you're bullied, you're kind of made to feel sorry for them. And they feel sorry for themselves because they've been picked on. She's not like that at all. She really stands up for herself. She believes in herself. Um, There is a lot to like about the Andy character in this movie, but the two male leads, Ducky and Blaine, are at times very hard to like. And I'm I'm not going to spoil the movie. I hate how it ended. I hated it. Hated it. Hated it. Hated it. Hated it. Um. I I had it really hurts my heart, but I had to give Pretty in Pink a two out of five. It's okay, it's all over now. You can do it. <laughs> I did. Um, I've never seen Pretty in Pink. It's been one I've resisted watching. 
Can, uh, as you'll know from our previous conversations, not a John Hughes guy. I, I feel he's very a product of uh, of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel a number of his movies haven't aged particularly well. Sounds like this one fits that bill. Breakfast Club is another one I find a little bit overrated. You slap your um, face right now for me. Slap yourself. <laughs> slap your face for me right now. You're, you, you already knew that. I know that, but I want to slap it again. You're so lucky that you're not here in person. I can't wait till you get here because then when you say Ugly shit like that, I can reach across and slap your face. Yeah. So uh, hearing you, a obviously adamant defender of some John Hughes movies, hearing you give Pretty and Pink a two just confirms that I don't think I'll find anything to like in it. No, don't. Avoid this one. Yeah, we will do. Next up was another one I wanted to revisit for a while. And I shouldn't say that. This has kind of a little bit been on my radar. And I haven't seen this movie... Well over 25 years, if not longer. And this is the 1982 action film, First Blood. Starring Sylvester Stallone. Uh, A veteran Green Beret is forced by a cruel sheriff and his deputies to flee into the mountains and wage an escalating one-man war against his pursuers. Sam, have you seen First Blood? I think I've... I've maybe seen one of the like newer Ram- Rambo movies. Okay, but but I uh, haven't seen this. What you want to do, Sam, is avoid all the Rambo movies like The Plague, except this one. This one is actually good. I I just heard somebody talking about the Rambo movies for sure. I cannot place where I just heard somebody talking about these movies, but I've heard this one is like night and day different from the rest of the it, franchise. It is completely different. From the like franchise. not just in terms of quality, but just like even su- like it's subject matter, basically. Yes, everything, yeah. everything. Yeah. So this movie always holds a special, and this is an easy watch, Sam. It's it's an hour and thirty three. Huh. Okay. This movie has always held a special place in my heart, even though for it's for no reason other than it was filmed in Hope. Oh, really? Yes. And huh. so every time I drive through Hope, to this day, I still think. They filmed First Blood here. So, by that logic, do you also like the A-Team and Power Rangers because they were filmed in Kamloops? No, I haven't seen them. <laughs> nope. I, don't, I have no idea why. I, maybe it's a childhood thing because this, I was seven years old when this movie came out. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's probably it. The other thing I like about this movie is it actually reminded me of what a really great actor Brian Dennehy was. He plays the, he plays the antagonist in this movie. I don't, yeah, yeah, Will Teasel. I don't see him as a villain. Now, he is kind of a shitty small-town sheriff, and all the bullshit that happens in this movie could have easily been avoided if Will Teasel was a nicer guy. But he's not, like, a a mustache-twirling villain. All that happens is uh, Sylvester Stallone shows up in this small town. Will Teasel sees him. He's a drifter. He wants nothing. He wants no drifters coming into his town and causing trouble. So he gets him. He tries to get him to leave. When Stallone doesn't leave, Teasel abuses his power as a sheriff and arrests him for vagrancy and stuff like that. And this is where it differs from the other Rambo movies. So while they're trying to process John Rambo, they have him in cuffs. And they are trying to shave, they want to shave him to make him presentable. He goes, he has PTSD flashbacks from his time in Vietnam. And so he snaps. 
and fights back against them. Escapes the jail, and so he's pursued. And that's the movie. It's about him trying to escape from these cops that have mistreated him very badly. And some miscommunication and things just go bad. And his Green Beret training takes over. It's... (laughs) At times, the action is laughable, especially his escape from the jail. The fight choreography is laughably bad by today's standards but back then it was okay but when you're used to watching John Wick and other expertly choreographed fight scenes watching this is pretty rough (laughs) but his uh, there's a motorcycle chase scene um, that is really well done especially when you See, it's 1982, and so everything is done practically. There's a very large, and large, I mean, not like movie large, but like realistic large. Like a a motorbike takes a jump, which looks to be about 20 feet off of a road onto a field, which by today's stunt standards is nothing. But when you're watching an actual person do this on a motorbike with no helmet and no safety gear, you're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, what would have happened if he wiped out? Um, and then you see that police car uh, take that same jump. And it's kind of astounding to watch. Uh, so it's, it's well done. And then when he escapes into the mountain and it becomes, you know, like the special train guy who knows how to use the environment to his advantage against these regular cops, uh, it's pretty good. The movie is enjoyable. All the other Rambo films are patriotic bullshit. This movie is a actual it's an it's definitely an action movie at first, but it really delves into not really delves into, but really shows and highlights PTSD and a guy that has have had, is having trouble letting go of what happened in Vietnam. And he's trying to, he he's trying to get his life right, but he's not given the chance. And these people push him beyond his, beyond his brink. The problem is, Sam, if you watch this movie, there's a monologue at the end of this movie that I'm not gonna lie, in the hands of an incredible actor, would be almost Oscar worthy. In the hands of Stallone, you're watching it going. I wish somebody that could act well was doing this because the things he's saying and the feelings he's trying to get across and the message he's conveying are powerful, but they come across very weak because of Stallone's performance. And it's kind of a letdown, but this is the movie that really launches Stallone into the stratosphere of action star. Cause prior to this, he'd done the, he'd done Rocky one, two and three and a couple other, but no real action films. And so this propels him into superstardom. And you can see why, because the action parts are well done. He looks good. He looks good with a gun. It's all fun. It's this movie is it's worth checking out because it's very different than a lot of action movies. The thing is, the the only thing is 
is that for someone like yourself that grew up with the stuff that came after this, it will seem a little archaic. But if you can look at it from this is what began action movies in the 80s, it's good for that. Mm -hmm. First Blood gets a three out of five for me. Yeah, this is, uh, it's really been bothering me. Actually, I've been trying to figure it out as you've been talking. Where the hell I just heard somebody talking about the Rambo franchise. Um, I can't seem to remember it right now. Um, but I think the one that I've seen is the 2008 Rambo movie. And that's just, yeah. It's is, that the one the, is that the one in the Philippines? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, not good. Uh, trust me, not enjoy. Trust me, Sam, all of the other ones are fucking horseshit. They are yeah. horrible. I think I think even I mean it came out in 2008 so I would have been like 11 or 12 when that came out. I think even then I was like this is a little childish. <laughs> you have this is a little, If you think so. that one's bad, <clears throat> 2 and 3 are so bad, my friend. Yeah. But this this one this one is good. It is good. Looks uh, like there's 5 total. There's uh one one two and 3 the 2008 Rambo and one just came out this or 2019 called Last Blood. It looks like yeah, which uh, yet yeah, don't think I'm gonna be checking that one out. Don't. So. Yeah, I, I haven't watched it. I have no desire to. No, no. But th- this one th- again, look. There's a, a obviously there's a whole bunch of other movies that I'd recommend, Sam. But if you're if you're ever just like, ah, eh, look, I want to watch a, a kind of a dumb action movie or something like that, check this out. I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. Uh, First Blood gets a 61 on Metacritic. Mm-hmm. Last Blood gets a 26. <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. So, yeah, three out of five. Cool. Right, right on court with the Metascore for me. Uh, next up, I decided to uh, revisit this uh, little adventure comedy film from 2001 starring two massive stars. Massive stars. And one person who's about to become a huge TV star. Directed by somebody who ends up creating a billion-dollar franchise. All of this put together makes you think that this movie is great. It is not, but this is a guilty pleasure of mine. And that's the 2001 film starring Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts... James Gandolfini, directed by Gore Verbinski of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. This movie is called The Mexican. The plot, a man tries to transport an ancient gun called The Mexican, believed to carry a curse, back across the border while his girlfriend pressures him to give up his criminal ways. We have Brad Pitt at his hunky hunkiest. We have Julia Roberts at her biggest smile of all time and James Gandolfini right before The Sopranos is about to hit the airwaves. You could you could make the argument that Brad Pitt has not yet reached his hunky of hunkiness, whatever it is you just said. <laughs> you can make the argument that in 2021, his best is still ahead of him. True. After having seen him once upon a time in Hollywood. Oof. Have you... Oh, wait. Sopranos is already on TV in, in 2001. 2001. Yeah. Th- he's in the third season, so he's already, already there. Um, if you're talking about Brad Pitt as hunky hunkiest, you obviously haven't seen him in Thelma and the Louise. I have not. You're correct. Yeah, yeah. That was that was his debut, right? Pretty much, or his major debut, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sam, this <laughs> this is a movie. 
Oh, you know who else is in this movie? Os- uh, J.K. Simmons. Yep, Oscar-winning <laughs> J.K. Simmons with hair. No way. Yeah. Shut up. If you look at pictures, you'll be you'll you'll guffaw. Ted Slocum. Yep. Hmm. Uh, this movie, my friend, not good. <laughs> but I get pleasure out of watching it, and that's what counts. And that's what counts. I literally get pleasure. This movie has raised one point, one full point, because Brad Pitt, <laughs> he just says this two words, and it's the way he says it, and there's no real cool context, but it's just the way he says it. He just goes, El Camino. <laughs> it is ridiculous, I know, but I fucking love him. This is one of the few Brad Pitt comedy roles. It's this is a full on comedy. It is a little bit of an adventure and crime and stuff like that. Um, there's some really enjoyable moments, but I can't recommend this movie. I will not recommend this movie. I gave this movie a three. This movie it makes me giggle. It has a good time. Brad Pitt is is playing a complete loser, a complete doofus. Uh, I I've enjoyed this movie, but I will never recommend it to anybody. I'm happy for you, Manny. Thanks, buddy. You, you know what occurred to me actually is uh, I was just I was just daydreaming about uh, Brad Pitt's filmography. Mm-hmm. Remember that time we did the uh, Hall of Fame episode on Tom Hanks? Yeah, Brad Pitt would be a fun one to do. I would be all over that. Yeah, be that's a fun one. that's something that we should do for a January episode. Definitely, definitely. Okay, I'm gonna keep that in mind. The thing is, is that you're missing a lot of his filmography. Well, I've got till January to catch up then, don't I? (laughs) (laughs) Which you would leave until January. I would leave it till December. That's true. (laughs) I should just create a viewing schedule for you. I promise you I would not adhere to it. (laughs) (laughs) I guarantee you I would not adhere to it. I'm going to use my my many movie club picks to get you to watch the things I need you to watch for our podcast. I already have a viewing schedule. It's called Whenever the Fuck I Want. <laughs> Desperately trying to expand your horizons. Indeed. All right. Now, I saved the best for last. One of the goals I have this year, I've set for myself, is to watch any movie that I own that I haven't seen. I have a selection of movies that I blind bought on Blu-ray that I've never seen. So I decided to knock one off. I was in the mood to watch something good. So I picked up the 1950 drama. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it's in the 20s on the AFI Top 100. And that's all about Eve. Starring Betty Davis and Baxter and George Sanders. Uh, Written and directed by Joseph Mankiewicz, the brother of Herman Mankiewicz. The plot, a seemingly timid but secretly ruthless ingenue, insinuates herself into the lives of an aging Broadway star and her circle of theater friends. Sam, you want to say something? Uh, Number 16 on the 1998 list. And on the 2007 list, it is number 28. 28. 16 wow. and 28. Went down a whole 12 spots. It did. Um, 
Sam, this movie's unbelievable. Unbelievable. This movie is worthy of all the accolades that it receives. This movie is worthy of both the 16th rating and the, I'm sorry, you said the 28th rating? Yeah, 16 down to 28. Yeah, both of those, just fine. This movie is fucking brilliant. The writing in this movie, the dialogue, Sam, oh my god. The fucking harsh burns they give each other in this movie is fucking biting. These performances... Let me go like this. If I'm not mistaken, this movie holds the record for the most nominations for performances by any film. This movie had one, two, three, four, five of its performers nominated for an Academy Award in one year. Holy shit. Yes. Do you want to know how? what else this movie is known for? What is it known for? There are three movies in the history of the Academy Awards that have had 14 Oscar nominations, and this is one of them. Do you know the other two? Um, I, I know I, for a fact that you know both those movies. I just I'm don't know if you... Pretty, I'm pretty sure I know both of them, but I could... Uh, Titanic? Yep. And La La Land? You are correct, sir! Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well okay, done. In, in my head, that didn't sound right, but yeah. Yes. Nice. And All About Eve. And that's bigger achievement back then, by the way, because I think there were fewer categories, right? Uh, actually, I think there was, actually, there's, there was actually more categories. There technically may have been more, but I'm noticing also, I'm looking at the, uh, the nominations for All About Eve. I'm noticing that a lot of the, uh, categories were segregated between black and white film yep. and color film. Yes. That's... So technically there may have been more categories, but I think it would have been eligible for fewer. Correct? Correct. Okay. <sighs> uh, honestly... Sam, this movie is unbelievably good. Mm-hmm. Um, I was stunned to learn that Betty Davis did not win Best Actress for this. Stunned. While she was one of the nominees, I am shocked because this this is inarguably one of the greatest performances I've seen from an actress. She is period full stop. Period full stop. Period full stop. She is she has so much to work with. And she is delicious in this. And that goes nothing to say on how good Anne Baxter is as the aforementioned Eve. She is unbelievable. Everybody in this movie is so good. The screenplay fucking crackles. It is a deliciously biting movie that I can't get enough of. I am anxiously looking forward to watching this again. This movie is an absolute treat. This is the these are this is the kind of movie where I'm going in I'm like, "Okay, is it as good as they say? Like it? What? It's in the top thirty films of all time. You're, you're goddamn right. It is. This movie is so fucking good, Sam. 
so fucking good. All About Eve, Slam Dunk 5, Easy 5, absolutely brilliant film. That's about as glowing a recommendation as you can get. Yeah. I think I, uh, about 60 seconds into that, I had it added officially <laughs> to my Letterboxd watch list. That was quite the glowing review. Full disclosure, after watching this, this leapt onto my, uh, my Manny Movie Club list. I'd be, I'd be happy to, Manny. Yeah. That would be- I, I have my turns coming up soon. Mm. I have a movie in mind. I almost want to switch it to this one. Mm. But we'll see. We'll see. Okay. All about Eve, five out of five. If anybody, the only reason I would say for somebody not to watch this is if for, you're one of those people that just doesn't like classic films, you can't get over black and white films and you find you can't focus on them because they're black and white. Trust me, I know there's people like that. I've met a few of them. Me too. If you're one of those people, fine, don't check this out. Don't take my recommendation. You're missing out. It's your own fault. But for anybody else, if you want to watch a really good fucking movie, put on All About Eve. You will not be disappointed. I love it. All right. So we go from an absolute masterpiece into what Sam has described as a possible masterpiece. And that is this week's first part of our annual Star Wars miniseries, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Released May 19th, 1999, written and directed by George Lucas, starring Ewan McGregor, Liam Neeson, and Natalie Portman. Has a Metascore of 51. It went 0 for 3 at the Oscars. Uh, the three nominations it got were for Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects. It had a budget of $115 million. It grossed 474 in the U.S. and $1.03 billion worldwide. The plot? Two Jedi escape a hostile blockade to find allies and come across a young boy who may bring balance to the Force. But the long-dormant Sith resurface to claim their original glory. Samuel. Here we are. Star Wars... The Phantom Menace. If I'm not mistaken, you would have been six? No, three when this movie came out. I would not yet have been three. So, was this your introduction to the Star Wars universe? Yes, it was. I knew... I knew Qui-Gon Jinn and Jar Jar Binks and Queen Amidala. I knew all these characters before I knew Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Chewbacca. That makes me I grew up on fucking these throw up. That makes me sad for you. I I would of course go on in I would I would say my preteen years. I would go on to discover the original trilogy. Uh, but these are the ones I knew when I was really really young. Single digit age. Tell us about Star Wars Phantom Menace. <laughs> you had me in full anticipation there. Okay, so I did grow up on these movies. Let's put that aside just just for a second. My my per, my personal experience with Star Wars, and it is vast. I've seen all three of these movies that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks many many times. The Phantom Menace had a lot of build up to it, of course. 
the first Star Wars movie released in what would it have been 19 years? Yes. Something uh, between uh, um, Return of the Jedi and this one, something like that. Yeah, I think Jedi's 83 or 84. Oh, in my head it was 80, but I guess that's Empire, isn't it? 82? I'll get it. Regardless, first. it had been a long time since the last Star Wars movie. George Lucas at the helm directing a movie for the first time or directing one of these movies because he did not he didn't direct um episode six right i think this was the first one he actually directed if i recall oh yes yeah i'm pretty sure that's correct um and that proved to be a problem this movie has a lot of issues i think people get the wrong idea about the phantom menace as far as what the problem is I think people, especially diehard Star Wars fans, always look towards two things in particular. They look towards Jar Jar Binks, and they look towards midi-chlorians as, like, the two worst things about this movie. Um, I enjoyed Jar Jar Binks when I was three. Uh, I have grown out of him, (laughs) to put it mildly. Um, and midi-chlorians, I mean, sure, it's, it's a really dull explanation for a really mystical thing, but I, I can, I can abide it. The movie really suffers, uh, because of the tone. It's one of the main things I'll hear people say about this movie, which is correct, which is that it just doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie. It doesn't have that feeling. And I don't think the source of that feeling is the fact that it's about politics or that it's, it's, it has a lot of bureaucracy in it. And that is part of it is that it doesn't have levity and it doesn't have banter. The characters just do not have banter between them and they don't have chemistry like we see in some of the other movies. I, I think about as early as a new hope, uh, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo shooting at TIE fighters, Luke saying, I got one, I got one, and Han Solo turning around saying, that's great, kid, don't get cocky. Like, those those sorts of moments between characters where they have little little verbal jousts and they have, they have these little moments of fun between them. These characters are all so serious and they all, they all take everything so seriously. There's no fun, there's no levity. Everybody is wooden in these movies. These movies have Samuel L. freaking Jackson and he's boring. Samuel L. Jackson, boring in this movie. That is not easy to do. And it comes from George Lucas. This is the first one that he directs. And it shows. It's boring. And everything that's wrong with this movie is all cyclical. The direction is boring because there's so much walking and talking. And the acting is bad because the dialogue is lifeless. The dialogue is lifeless because it's shot so blandly. And it's shot so blandly because it's bland dialogue. It's just all cyclical. And it builds up on each other. I could go a lot deeper into this. I think we're going to get a lot more into this stuff in when we talk about spoilers. I told Manny before we got on the show I'd keep this segment short. I've I don't, already I, failed. I don't want you to keep it short. I want you to keep going. Okay, fine. I'll I'll we'll, we're going to do this thing. Keep going. Um <laughs> Um let me see here what else do I have? Good things. Okay. Good things about about Phantom Menace. Let's go. Okay. The following are a list of good things about the Phantom Menace. I Objective. want you to skip this part. Never mind. Forget it. We're not talking about the good things. <laughs> All right. What else do we have here? Oh, I wanted to give a shout out to a YouTube channel called Belated Media. Um, whenever I go back and re- rewatch the prequels, which is basically every year at this point, because I do this at basically every May the 4th. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Belated Media, because every time I go back to watch the prequels, um, I watch this series of YouTube videos by them. And the series is called, What If the Prequels Were Good? 
and it's it's uh they came out before the sequel trilogy mm-hmm. uh episode seven eight and nine uh and they are sort of a reimagining rewriting of the uh of the prequel trilogy and it makes me a little bit sad to watch them because it makes me realize just how good these movies could have been and how good they should have been um it, but i like rewatching those so i wanted to give a shout out to that real quick um yeah the politics and the bureaucracy um while they are a problem, are kind of secondary. That being said, here's a list of words that are in this movie that I never want to hear in another Star Wars movie again, okay? Viceroy, Senate, Treaty, Blockade, Federation. Just get those words out of Star Wars movies forever. Boring, boring, boring script writing. We don't need any of that. Um, All of this is even neglecting the CGI. The CGI has aged very poorly because it's used so extensively and the technology has aged, has gone a lot further in the last 23 years. So the CGI itself has obviously aged because the entire movie is CGI. Um, that is... Manny, I think that's about it. Thank you for sticking with me through all of that. Um, and uh, fuck Jar Jar Binks, I guess would be the end of that. Um, <laughs> I do have positive things to say about it, but uh, I will I will save those for cool. uh, for a little bit later on. Manny, please, you've waited so patiently. Uh, what do you have to say? No, I, I the only reason I didn't want you to go on the positives is uh, I have some positive stuff to talk about as well, but I want to get into that spoilers. So I please. didn't want you to touch on stuff that I know for a fact we're going to be touching on again. What I really okay. wanted to make sure that you get uh, that I I I loved how impassioned you were about everything mm-hmm. and that's really why i just wanted to kind of let you go please for me um being in i guess everyone calls them the original trilogy the prequels and the sequels that's basically yes. how it's broken down mm-hmm. i'm of the exact age and generation actually i'm a little too young but I'm of the generation where the original trilogy is incredibly important to our youth. And what I mean by that, like, when Star Wars came out, 77, I was two. Too young to go to the theater to see it. So if I had been anywhere from the ages of 6 to 12 when the first one would have came out, it would have been the greatest thing my life had ever seen. That being said despite me being a little bit younger, by the time that Jedi came out in 83, which is what I just double-checked, so 16 years between films, I was eight. And they were the greatest things I'd ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Return of the Jedi, this is the difference, <laughs> difference in parenting. I'm almost positive, almost positive, that I went to Return of the Jedi without my parents. <sighs> That me and my best friend were dropped off at the theater and we went and saw it on our own. I'm almost positive. And you would have been approximately, eight, what, like eight years old? Eight years old. Yeah. So those movies mean... <laughs> Let me phrase that. Those movies meant the world to me. They don't anymore. My love for Star Wars has almost completely disappeared. I enjoy them. They used to be the war. They used to mean everything to me. Star Wars used to be what the MCU is to me now. So I grew up playing with the toys, wondering everything about Star Wars, creating my own Star Wars stories in my head with my action figures, 
going on my own adventures with Luke Skywalker, thinking he was the greatest thing ever. Darth Vader was the ultimate evil in all the world, even though in and Return of the Jedi, spoilers alert, he 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 redeems himself. All of that, phenomenal. Then word comes out, Lucas is doing a prequel trilogy, and I go fucking ape shit. Rumors persist, then production starts. This is pre-internet. Not quite pre-internet, but the baby steps of the internet. It's not anywhere near it was, so we couldn't get all the news on the internet. So you would get smatterings of stuff. I can't remember the exact movie that it was, Sam, but it was announced that the very first trailer for Phantom Menace was going to play right before a certain movie, and thousands of people bought tickets to that movie just to watch that trailer and then left. When that movie came out, I wasn't one of the people camping, and I think I waited about a week and a half before I went and saw it. And, thankfully, this is pre-internet, so avoiding spoilers was pretty easy. What I couldn't avoid was the negative reviews. And so going into the theater, I was nervous because all I heard were bad things. And I left the theater deflated and sad that my childhood, all the dreams I had of the Star Wars universe and everything like that, had been sullied. I won't say wrecked, because I still have the original trilogy, and I still enjoy them as much as I always have. Little did I know what was ahead of me with the next two films as well. And everything that you said is exactly true. There is a complete lack of fun in this movie. George Lucas as a director is atrociously bad. It Seeing... How he directs the original Star Wars, which is the only one he directed. After he directs episode four, the next film he directs is this one. 22 years in between directorial efforts. He didn't direct Empire and he didn't direct Jedi. In my head, he didn't even direct the first one for some reason. But yeah, okay. Yeah, definitely. His lack of ability to properly tell a story or to get actual performances from people is painfully apparent. Your exact words were wooden performances. That's doing a discredit to wood. Like it, it it's it's bad. It's really bad and I lay zero blame on the actors. Well, the three main leads. Yeah. Because we have an Oscar winner in Natalie Portman, an Oscar-nominated actor in Liam Neeson. Is Ewan McGregor had an Oscar nomination? Did he get nominated for Moulin Rouge or anything? I I hope not for that one. (laughs) I'm just trying to— I don't think so. I can't think of another performance that he could have been nominated for. Um, three movies I can find, by the way, where the trailer for uh, Phantom Menace played before it were Meet Joe Black, The Water Boy, and The Siege. Hmm. I think it might have been The Siege. Okay. Um. Yeah. No. No Oscar nominations for Hugh McGregor. He got a Golden Globe, but he, 
Ewan McGregor is a good actor. Um, I would I would argue in all of these movies, um, partially in this one, but um, just in general, he is the one doing the most stuff. And there, there's a reason that they rebooted. I think they're doing an Obi Wan series with Ewan McGregor, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, they're I think I, I they're think, they're I in full production, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, his performance as Obi Wan, while it is not winning any awards, nor should it. Um, it, it's definitely the the most fun performance I think in the prequels. That's how I feel anyway. Over the course of the prequels, yes, correct. Okay. Manny is contemplating. <laughs> I'll get back to you at the end of the series. Okay, yeah, that's fair. <sighs> this movie was such a disappointment in 1999. Um, it it made me sad that I had to wait 16 years for this. I've revisited this movie uh, numerous times since 1999. I would say I've probably watched this movie, I don't know, 12 to 15 times. And that's going to shock people. Spoiler alert, my rating on this is going to be low. But when this movie works, and there are two sequences in particular that really fucking work, this movie is unbelievable the rest of the time though it's a hard sit through perfect i didn't give anything away that was all spoiler free awesome um, yeah, that's great let's get into the movie spoilers for star wars episode one the phantom menace in three two one go fuck yourself Sam, we're going to go through this a little differently. We're definitely not going to go through the plot uh, because that will just upset me. Mm -hmm. So I want to start by talking about some of the performers and performances and then a couple things that I want to discuss with the movie and then just a couple sections slash scenes slash moments in the movie that I'd I'd like to touch on. Uh, If you're okay with that. Okay, and then let's if, do it. I, if I miss anything that you feel is important, uh, we can circle back to it. Is that okay? I would definitely chime in. All right, let's start off with our apparent lead of the first film, and that's Liam Neeson as Qui Gon Jinn. That was just real quick. Want to just say one of the things I wanted to ask before we got into non spoiler, but we can do it here. Mm-hmm. I think something that points out one of the many problems with the movie is just the simple question: Who is the lead? Who who is this movie about? It, it it feels like it varies, and it feels like it doesn't know who it should be about. It, it doesn't know who who it's it it definitely doesn't because you want to say Ewan McGregor, but Liam Neeson's the one that goes into whatever whatever town that Anakin lives in, and Ewan McGregor mm-hmm. sits in the fucking plane or the starship for what an hour of the movie? Yeah. For a ridiculously long time. It yes. feels like this movie should be about Obi-Wan. And it should be... A, the, the prequels should serve the purpose of showing us Obi-Wan and Anakin growing together and then the heartbreak of their separation when Anakin turns to the dark side. That's what the prequels should be about. So even though I like the introduction of the character, Qui-Gon is fine. And we can have him in the movie and we can have Obi-Wan have a master. Um, but we need to know what our trilogy is going to be about. 
one of the main criticisms of the sequel trilogy is that it had no planning whatsoever. Well, I mean, this is this is ground zero for that case, right? Right here with the prequels. Except we, except it's we, very apparent that even the prequels had very poor planning as far as the screenwriting is concerned. There you because go. Qui Gon should not be the protagonist of this movie. He should not be the lead. It should be Obi Wan, quite clearly. Claire, I just want to clarify, like. We know that the sequel trilogy didn't have even a rough outline. I shouldn't say we know that. It's a it's a it's obviously apparent that they didn't. Yes. But we know for a fact that Lucas had a plan with mm-hmm. his with his prequels. And so I agree that's it's a it's a massive screenwriting problem. That I agree. It, Obi-Wan should be the lead of this movie and mm-hmm. he's not. That is rectified in the next two. Yeah, nothing a little murder can't fix, but yeah, yeah. So I agree. Touching on him, I don't mind Liam Neeson as Qui Gon Jinn. For the type of character he's supposed to be portraying, he does a good job. The nice thing with Liam Neeson is there's something about his delivery, his tone of voice. In all of his films, it's not at the same level. So, trust me, because the person I'm about to compare him to, I love the other guy way fucking more. But he has that almost regality that Morgan Freeman has. Yeah. You hear that voice, that tone, the way he talks. It's it's kind of a commanding presence. It's it's It makes you feel safe. It makes you feel... This this man is wise beyond yeah. his beyond his years and beyond that. It's the same with Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman talks like I don't. Do you think that Morgan Freeman would be capable of playing a character that is unintelligent? Like, yeah. would as great an actor as he is, would you ever believe like there's no Morgan Freeman's not yeah, dumb? Yeah, if, if Morgan played Morgan Freeman played a stupid person in a movie, I'd be like, who the fuck did this casting? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's the same with Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson just kind of has this. It, this on-screen intelligence that comes across. And so this is really great casting for this role. Yeah, I, I was just about to say the same thing. I, I think the casting of Qui- Qui-Gon is absolutely perfect. Um, I, I think he and Ewan McGregor, even though the performances in general in the movie are a little bit wooden, um, these characters, A, get a little bit of a pass because their roles are written to be quite stoic for the mm-hmm. most part, which is, again, a very bad screenwriting decision, just intentionally making your characters bland or watered down. Um, but they also get a pass because I think um, I think they're being acted uh, as... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to say this. They're being acted as well as any other characters in this movie. That's The, the quality of performance is higher here than anywhere else in the movie. And maybe part of that comes from the fact that Liam Neeson was so passionate about being in one of these movies. Apparently, he didn't even read the script before he signed on. He just said, get me in this movie. So yep. he he obviously was very passionate about working with George Lucas. Maybe that's part of the source. And I think another part of it is just the casting in general. Liam Neeson does have that uh, that that mentorship quality to it, like that, that, that wise mm-hmm. aura around him generally. So, yeah, I agree. Next up, we have who should have been the lead of this movie, and that's Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, early on in the movie, I find Ewan McGregor's performance 
hard to endure. Mm-hmm. His when he's a Padawan, he's it's rough. It gets better in the latter half. Basically, kind of after they get to Coruscant, it gets better. Mm-hmm. But when they're on the blockade ship, and when they're down on Naboo, he's honestly tough to take. Yeah, when they're on the when they're on the blockade ship, and he delivers a line to Liam Neeson, which has never stuck out to me as especially bad before, but did this time, when he says, well, "One thing's clear, Master," the ne- or, or you were right about one thing. The negotiations were short. It's just so not funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost funny how unfunny that delivery is. Yeah, but, it, yeah. It, it's rough. Um, yeah. But other than that, um, the physicality that Ewan McGregor has, he definitely comes across as someone that knows how to use a lightsaber. He's very athletic. At no point do I ever feel that he's not uh, a, a Jedi. Um, which is nice because a lot of the casting they do, I actually can't think of somebody that I, that was a Jedi that didn't really look the part except for <laughs> shit is to say Sir Alec Guinness. <laughs> yeah, but he would have been. He what, was the first one cast. Yeah, he would have been what sixty, seventy years old. So I can't really fault him for not being overly uh, nimble. Uh, and same <laughs> and same with David Prowse as Darth Vader. While menacing in size and stature and movement, uh, the uh, lightsaber battle. Yeah. That first not... lightsaber fight in A New Hope is uh, is a rough watch, actually. It's rough. Um, but <clears throat> circling back to Ewan McGregor, uh, he's fine in this. He gets better as the series continues, like you said. From my, from my recollection, I'm interested to see his performances so they can hopefully get me through Hayden Christensen's. Um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about Attack of the Clones. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah. So, Ian McGregor, he's fine in this. Uh, some painful moments. But all in all, it's fine. Anything on Ian McGregor? No. He and Liam Neeson are kind of the high watermark for this movie. They will be the they will be the performances by which everyone else around them is measured. Mm. Which will take us to Oscar-winning actress Natalie Portman. Uh, not for this role, she's not. <laughs> no, no. Um, this was really hard to see someone that we know has this much talent be so completely neutered. Yeah. Un- she, she unca- talks like she's on. She talks like she's on Valium for most of the movie. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to watch someone with this much talent be this bad. Yeah, it's not good. Not good at all. Um, there's <laughs> again something that I only noticed when I got a little bit older is there's a a really boring, pointless scene where she moves for a vote of no confidence for Chancellor Valorum, and that sentence itself almost just put me to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but that line, that line delivery where she she says that is so dull and lifeless and uninteresting, but she's actually doing like really good facial acting. I don't know. It could just be me that picked up on this, but she has this like expression of regret and sorrow on her face where like just for a second, I got a glimpse of like a really good performance and then it's gone to flash in the next scene. She like, she's back to not only being dull with her line readings, but also with her facial expressions. Um, One of the interesting things 
that <clears throat> I did <clears throat> obviously at the time. Oh, I got to clear my throat. One second. Yeah, you go on. Ed. One of the things uh, we find out years later, because at the time this actress was known, was that Kira Knightley plays Queen Amidala and the decoy at times. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to point out <clears throat> is that uh, Queen Amidala plays the role of Padme for a lot of the film. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So when I don't know what Kira Knightley's character is called, is her name Padme? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Probably not. I, I guess she would just be the double, right? Let's see if I can find. I, I, I mean, she must be unnamed in the script, I would imagine. Well, she's got to have some type of name in there, right? If, if it was any sort of name, I would imagine it would be the double. I'm sure she as it's a person. Sa- it's Sabe. Sabe? S-A-B-E with the accent agu or what Ooh. or the accent something. I can't I only I can only remember accent agu from French. Circumflex is the one that looks like a <clears> little oh, yeah. hat. It's not a circumflex, but it's it's, it's a accent agu. Accent agu. <laughs> so nice. I don't know how to pronounce that. Is it Sabe? I would imagine so, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna just gonna I'm gonna call her Sabe. Okay, yeah. so her character's name is Sabe. So when Sabe is the queen because she's playing the queen and Padme, she's the decoy and Padme is playing Padme because she's trying to protect herself as the queen. The queen gives orders and makes the actual queen clean R2-D2. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. When, <laughs> R- that. when R2-D2 saves the ship and, the, and that's her introduction to R2-D2, <laughs> it's Padme. Natalie Portman is... Is not Amidala. She's Padme. She's the fucking. She's in disguise. So fucking Sabe's like, hey bitch, queen, go clean that fucking droid. Wouldn't you abuse that though? <laughs> Aren't you gonna pay for that later? <laughs> Maybe I don't know. What's she gonna do? Assassinate her own double? It was uh, not even assassinate. Like fire or f- fucking throw in prison? Hey, I don't know. Bi- hey like bitch. Is, hey bitch. Like royalty is the best job security you can have. Hey, bitch, don't get me fucking cleaning droids. Send one of the other 15 fucking helpers we got here. Hey, it's in the name of maintaining the illusion. That's the only reason I could think of. Yeah, they must have some pre-agreement like, hey, if you got to make me clean a droid or or wipe the floor or do anything, you got to make me do it. It's in the name of the illusion. That stood out to me. And then the other thing that stood out to me, and this is all pre-research, um... If she's a queen, why was she elected? Yeah, that no, I noticed that too. Yes. The recently elected, isn't it even in the same sentence? The recently elected queen of Naboo? Yeah. That so is, I, I did some. called a president or a prime minister. Actually, no. Uh, a quick Google search. There are numerous times that queens and kings were elected, elected positions. Really? Yeah. And then what would happen is sometimes they would eventually become hereditary. But yeah, there's there's there was like I think off the top of my head like they had like 15 different times that kings and queens were elected into their position. But those must be exceptions rather than the rule. Right? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Of course, of course. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to point that out. Um, I don't really have much to say about Natalie Portman other than like it's such a waste of talent. It is. Yeah. And I I noticed I I had precisely one moment where I identified that there's an Oscar winner in there somewhere. I had one glimpse into that pasty makeup where I saw maybe some uh, 
some effort, but that was, was few and far between. Uh, very good. Last two things I want to say about Natalie before I move on. Yeah. Um, shit, I forgot one. Okay. One thing you want to say about Natalie Portman. One thing I want to say about <laughs> Natalie Portman is the whole time I was watching her when she's Queen Amidala mm-hmm. is I could not help but think how fucking uncomfortable those headpieces must have been. Yes, absolutely. It was very, very elaborate hair work. Very, and the, it could not have been light. Like, I just felt, I'm like, how long were you sitting there with that fucking thing on your head? Yeah, her poor neck. Yeah. Okay, next up. The one that probably everybody wants to talk about. And yet doesn't. Jar Jar Binks. Does, does everyone want to talk about Jar Jar Binks? Yeah, you know why everyone wants to talk about Jar Jar Binks? Everyone has no problem to shit kick this guy. Mm-hmm. Everybody is happy to say how much they hate him and how much they despise him and how much they feel that he's the reason that this movie sucks. He is not the reason this movie sucks. George Lucas is the reason this movie sucks. Amen. Um, I can totally understand why young, very young children would love Jar Jar Binks. There's no doubt in my mind that if I was to somehow convince Maya to watch this movie, Maya will not will not watch any Star Wars movies. Even though she's never seen one, she hates Star Wars. Um, Raising her right. Yeah, I know. Um, I think she would get a kick out of Jar Jar. I, of course, at the time in 1999, hated him. Naturally. I, my feelings have not changed much. I don't believe my feelings towards Jar Jar have reduced from hatred to uh, dislike or uh, I'm apathetic towards him. An acceptance of how bad he is is what basically I have now. What an exquisite experience it was this time (laughs) to watch this movie with subtitles when Jar Jar Binks was on screen. That is that is the primary thing I can say about Jar Jar Binks this time that I found novel. Was what, I watched it with subtitles this time for the first time. Why? I don't, Jordan likes watching movies with subtitles sometimes, and honestly, I'm kind of indifferent. I don't care one way or the other. Fair enough. And watching, watching the closed captioning for <laughs> Jar Jar Binks' dialogue is actually kind of hilarious, <laughs> trying to get them to spell these things properly. <laughs> Could you imagine if you were born deaf and you had You're to like, what read? What the fuck is this guy saying? You and you have to read this? Yeah, gibberish, gibberish. Um, you really do have to feel for Ahmed Best, um, yes. the guy who uh, who voices and provides motion capture for Jar Jar Binks. Uh, you can do any sort of reading into this uh, if if you've never heard of this. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what I'm talking about. Ahmed Best was bullied relentlessly mm-hmm. uh, online. His career, I mean, it looks like he's done some stuff um, in movie and TV after the fact, but this this role basically defined his career as, I, w- I would say it's in contention for the most hated movie character ever. In such a popular movie, a, a character getting this much disdain, uh, he has to be the most hated movie character ever, right? I don't even know who you could have him up against. I yeah, honestly and, don't. And I'm not talking about like a villain like that everybody hates like I don't know like, like the antagonist of the movie. I just mean genuine genuinely reviled community-wide 
his performance was and he was bullied relentlessly i've heard that he uh, has come out and said that he contemplated suicide many times because of the hate letters and death threats he was getting over this role it's actually disgusting and makes me um, ironically enough it makes me a little bit more empathetic to him and make me dislike the character a little bit less that doesn't make the character any better Roger banks is still not a very good character the dialogue is bad he's annoying He's inept, but punishing the actor like that is uh, is cruel and unusual. It is uh, it is an indication of just how shitty we can be as a community sometimes when we when we're passionate about something and then something that we don't like finds its way into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I, I feel I feel a little dirty shitting on Jar Jar Binks sometimes, but it doesn't change the fact that he's there's no two ways about it. He's a terrible character. Um, he's there for the kids. Um, all the stuff I said about this movie lacking levity and fun, it feels like Jar Jar Binks was supposed to be um, the antidote to that. He was not. Um, it's just It just comes off as irritating. Um, he's also <laughs> has been accused of being a racial stereotype in oh. a number of different ways. Um, that's not to even talk about um, Watto as the hook-nosed, money-grubbing businessman and uh, and the Japanese stereotypes off the top of the movie. That's a whole other can of worms. But as far as Jar Jar Binks is concerned, um, I think it has, it has fallen out of fashion, let's say, to really shit on Jar Jar Binks, um, even though he is not very good. Yeah, I, I don't really need to shit on him more than I have myself over the last 20 plus years i think also part of it it's not even just the uh sympathy for ahmed best coming into it i think there's just nothing new to say he he is just like there's nothing that isn't readily apparent that you can say there's no deep analysis for the jar jar bangs character you just you don't like him because he's annoying that's that's it (laughs) that's the whole story so flipping from the most hated character to perhaps the most beloved character of this episode and that's darth maul Yes. Oh, there's one thing this movie did right. Uh, played by Ray Park, but he's voiced by somebody's name. I have a hard time. Peter Serenerfowitz, I think. I can't. Oh, I don't know. Um, sure. But he's he's played by Ray Park, and Ray Park also played Toad uh, in the X Men movie, the original X Men movie, and he also played the headless horseman in Sleepy Hollow. Uh, Peter Serafinowitz yeah. is uh, is Pete in Shaun of the Dead, if you remember that character. Oh, ha, I do. I just, I was today years old when I learned that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there he is. Oh, wow. How the, uh, he is incredibly cool looking, and the martial arts background that Ray Park has uh, really lends itself to this character and upping his coolness and intimidating factor. Uh, it's just a really great physical performance and a really great intimidating look. Um, I just tip my cap because it, it's so incredibly well done and in, it's so visually stunning. One of the great injustices of the Star Wars prequels is that Darth Maul dies in this movie. He really just should have been the central antagonist for this trilogy, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. we go from him to Count Dooku to Darth Sidious, and it becomes very unfocused. 
just give me Darth Maul for all three movies, man. He's so fucking cool. He's easily the best of all of them. Um, I had a fact somewhere. Um, oh God, I don't know where it is. Oh, um, Ray Park, or I guess uh, Mr. Seraphin, whatever his name was, mm-hmm. um, only says 31 words in this movie. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that's uh, that's 27 less than uh, than Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. <laughs> That's the that's the fact that I found, <laughs> and it's probably not a coincidence that the coolest character in a movie chock full of terrible dialogue is the one that only says thirty one words. Fair enough. Probably one of the reasons. If, I bet you, if he had more speaking lines, we wouldn't be talking about yeah, how we cool. Like, they're... wow, we would have been bullying Ray Park. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. And I saved the best for last. Did you? I don't think that you did. <laughs> I did. And by best, I mean the person that I can't wait to shit on the most. And that is, I'm sorry to say, little Jakey Lloyd. Wow. That is rough. I have him described in my notes as the anti Haley Joel Osmond. <laughs> well played. Same year. Same year. Hold on. Uh, Talk about Jake Lloyd with me for for a second. What's that? Go on about Jake Lloyd. I want to check something out. Okay. So speaking of people who have had their lives ruined by the Phantom Menace, uh, add Jake Lloyd to the list, including Ahmed Best, um, because Jake Lloyd also uh, basically had his life spiral after this movie. He went to the prototypical child star route, except uh, he had his defining role as one that was universally reviled, as one that was panned. Uh, there's no two ways about it. Jake Lloyd's not good in the movie. Uh, he is done no favors by the dialogue. But from the very first line, are you an angel? No. You just know that it is, we are in for a rough go. Every time, I say this as somebody, you can't tell by listening to me that I actually enjoy these movies when I watch them. <laughs> but I genuinely cannot find anything to enjoy about Jake Lloyd ever in this movie um i agree can his part part of something that i haven't really acknowledged in all of this is that the prequels have become a source of so many memes for kids my generation it's it's difficult to even say so many of the lines from this movie have just become basically in jokes for millennials Mm -hmm. um and just I the moments that I enjoy Jake Lloyd's performance are the moments where he's saying something that has become a joke, basically, because of how terrible the dialogue is. And it's kind of shitty to say, (laughs) much like uh, in the sense of Ahmed Best, um, how this terrible, terrible role defined both of their careers. Um, Yeah, Jake, Jake Lloyd, I have nothing nice to say about him. What I wanted to double check on why I wanted you to uh, rip into Jake for me is I wanted to double check something. The This movie came out in 1999, as did another movie called The Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense gives us arguably one of the all-time greatest child performances. I'm hard-pressed to find one that I like better than Haley Joel Osment. Haley Joel Osment is less than one year older than Jake Lloyd. Really? Yes. <laughs> Less than one year older. Hmm. And this is the performance we're getting from two people about the same age. Yikes. It is rough. 
Jake it, and you're so that opening are you an angel is so so bad to be fair he's done no favors by the dialogue the line itself is dumb mm-hmm. but he is also just reading it <laughs> that, that is the kindest way i can say it he's just, are you an angel it's just the intonation just kills me absolutely kills me um even talking about um talking about something as, as exciting as pod racing um he never seems excited he uh he's always just kind of reading he's always very matter of fact mm-hmm. in his delivery um he should be more excited he is about pod racing or about leaving tatooine or about flying a fucking spaceship later for some reason um and he just he brings no energy every line delivery is in the same place tonally um wooden 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 yeah it's rough jake lloyd ouch okay those are the main performance oh go ahead sorry on the bright side his life turned out okay after the fact oh wait he's been arrested numerous times and (laughs) uh, it's generally a disaster okay (laughs) all right those are the main performances i wanted to touch on two aspects of the filmmaking itself that i'd really like to highlight number one and the obvious one John Williams score. God damn it, is it ever good? Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I I hope you're I hope you're opening this episode with Duel of the Fates. I'm not. I'm not. Oh, not? oh, oh, sorry. I thought you wanted to talk about Duel of the Fates. I'm like, I'm saving Duel of the Fates. Uh you're goddamn right, it's Duel of the Fates. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> fucking opening up this episode, yes. Um Let me offer you a hypothetical. Okay, go for it. Now I, I understand that you do have uh, this movie does hold a little special place in your heart. It does. In spite of all the negative things I've said about it, it's still a, a very near and dear part of my childhood. Yeah, and I get it because I have same things about movies from my childhood. Yep. Looking at it from a critical perspective, could you imagine, try try to take your, nostalg- your, your nostalgic feelings away. It's gone. Get it out of here. You're looking at this movie from a purely critical standpoint. Okay. So from a critical standpoint, we are in agreement that this movie's not that great. It's very, very flawed. Could you imagine how bad it would be if John Williams hadn't scored it? I would like <laughs> to not do that. <laughs> um, because even in the moments when this movie is not great, his fucking score is superb. I noticed uh, when you were reading off the nominations for this movie, it didn't get one for score. Does it just not have enough original material to be considered for the for the category, or or is the Academy just brain dead and didn't actually hear Duel of the Fates and how amazing it is? It's a good question. I would have to assume. I would have to assume. No, there must have been because he would have wrote new themes for each character. Yeah, there's new themes all throughout this movie. Yeah, so the I guess... The fact that this is not nominated for Best Original Score is... Uh, is I'm, either It's either a technicality or it's bullshit. I'm looking at the scores that were nominated that year, and there's only one... And, and There's only one that I really like, and it didn't even win. And that is a score for American Beauty. Yeah, great score. Great score. The one that won was The Red Violin by a composer I don't recognize called John Corgliano. John Williams got a nomination for a score for a movie that uh, I've never seen called Angela's Ashes. Me neither. 
Then another movie I fucking hate got a best original score, and that's The Cider House Rules. Yikes. And then the Talented Mr. Ripley got one as well, which is a movie I desperately want to revisit because mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since 1999. I have not seen it. My brother really likes that movie. I heard it's I, – I remember being – I remember liking it, but everything I've heard since then is that it's a brilliant film. Um, yeah, the score is absolutely astounding. Uh, potentially incendiary comment incoming. Uh, Duel of the Fates – is the best track in all of Star Wars. That's discuss. Awesome. I I was actually leave, leaving that forever. Here is later on when we get to Duel of the Fates. I have these two notes. Oh oh sorry. Go for it. Okay. It's all right. We can go here. Okay. First one is I have two questions. First one, best lightsaber battle. Second question, best Star Wars theme. Uh, yeah, best Star Wars theme, definitely, for me. Um, That's so funny, because when I, when I wrote that, I was like, I don't think Sam's going to agree with me. I think he's going to like something better than this. Nope. Best song in Star Wars, period. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking I've fantastic. I've done a lot of thinking about this. <laughs> Believe me, I've thought about it a lot over the years. Best lightsaber battle. Mm, yeah, I uh, I don't know. In contention. I we, can't think of anything I like better than it. We can revisit it at the end of the series. Okay. Yeah, please. Okay. I, I, I'll, I'll keep it in mind. Okay. Um, okay, so we love the score. We both agree Duel of Fates is probably the best Star Wars track. Next up, the other Oscar nomination it got was for sound design, both sound and sound editing. Absolutely amazing. Yep. Humble brag on my surround sound, the pod race sounds fucking amazing. Ooh, humble brag. Humble brag. And then I remembered that it didn't win. And then I remembered why. It went, it went, oh, oh, yeah. Matrix? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It lost all three of its nominations to the Matrix. Yeah, what can you do? Yeah. And rightfully so. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I have one, two... Let's go like this. Okay, we'll zip through these. I want to talk about Tatooine. Okay. I want to talk about three things on Tatooine. Two quickly, one I want to get into. First up, Watto. Sorry, I love Watto. <laughs> I made a crin- when, he, when he said the name Watto, I made a cringe face. Well, I'm a big fan of Watto. I never have been. I love his voice. Not even when I was a kid. I fucking love him so much. I love that he can't be Jedi mind tricked. And I love that he calls out. He doesn't know that Qui-Gon Jinn is a Jedi. He's like, I, try, I wish I could remember the exact quote. He's like, what did he say? What's he fucking saying? Like again? what you think you're a Jedi or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I love it. I love his voice. I love everything about Watto. Uh, one Watto scene I do like, uh, the, the dice, the, the gambling, like, mm-hmm. I mean, he, the chance cube, uh, the chance cube. Is that what he calls it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, where they, him and, uh, Qui-Gon, uh, have a little, uh, a little game of chance and Qui-Gon of course waves his hand over it and, uh, and gets it to land on the spot that he wants a little cheater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's a fun scene. Uh, the other person on Tatooine I want to talk about is Sabalba. 
Yeah. Oh man, I'm I'm happy you said that. He's one. I I like Sebulba a lot. I I'm hope a, you're about to say positive things. I am. Big okay. Fan. Good. I love his voice, but I especially love his design. I love that his arms are his feet and his feet are his hands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was uh oh man, there was I was reading through IMDb trivia before we came on here and there was something about Sebulba and his design. Uh Lucas had him designed to be like a mix between uh like a camel's face mixed with a sloth with a warrior's armor who uses his hands as his feet and his feet as his hands or mm -hmm. something to that effect. There's like a few more animals they had tossed in there, but I think it was like a sloth of a camel's face basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just want to touch on Sebulba. I, he's a great little, uh, I guess, minor antagonist in the movie. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a big fan. Loved him. I've, I've always loved Sebulba as yeah. a, as a, like you said, a minor antagonist. He's, he's so cool. Okay. Which leads us to the only reason to talk about Tatooine. The pod race. Yeah. Expertly shot. Possibly the highlight of the film. And I get to see what is arguably one of my top three characters in all of Star Wars. And that's Jabba the Hutt. I am mm. a big Jabba fan. Uh, CG'd retroactively. Yeah, sadly it is CG'd because like I love Jedi, I love Jedi Java. I love practical Java. Love him. I, I genuinely can't remember. Was Java always CG in this one, or was he practical at one time? Always, this one? always CG. Okay, always CG. Because Yoda was practical when I was a kid in this movie. Yep. And then George Lucas can't keep his fucking hands off his movies. Even though Practical Yoda's kind of creepy in this one. I don't know if you remember what he looks like. I don't. Surprisingly creepy. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I, I fucking love Jabba. Even though he's he's barely in it. I, I don't know what it is about him. I've always fucking loved him. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you noticed. It was actually the... I didn't notice until I did... I was doing some trivia research. But in that one wide shot of his private pod or whatever you want to call it. Like a booth or whatever? Yeah. There is a girl wearing the Leia slave costume. I did notice that, yeah. I've never noticed it. I had to I, as soon as I saw that I had to run back and look. It's difficult to say which of these um like moments and features and easter eggs which of these have always been there and which of these were put there after the fact by George Lucas. Mm -hmm. it's, it's entirely possible that you didn't notice it before because it wasn't there. Possibly. Um Is there anything you want to touch on about the pod race? I have a kind of a big note, but um, this is so well done and so exciting. But at the same time, I'm just like, ugh, it could have been better. But it's so – it's it's one of the few times that George Lucas does something right in this movie. It's a great scene. Obviously one of the highlights of the movie. I don't think there's any debate about that. Um, if I can take the opportunity to compare it to a far better scene, mm -hmm. um, just to illustrate what's good about it, though. Um, one of the things I've often said about one of our favorite scenes, the border crossing in Sicario. <laughs> one of the things I've often said about this scene, what makes it so good, is that it's being set up like 15 minutes ahead of time what the stakes are. 
Like so far in advance in the pod racing scene, we're learning all about pod racing, how dangerous it is, how his mom doesn't want him to do it, how uh, they would uh, Qui-Gon would never ask him to go to a pod race because it's far too dangerous. And then we learn he's never even finished a race before. All these stakes are being set up far ahead of the actual scene. So by the time we get to the pod race, we already know there's a lot at stake. It's very dangerous and anything can happen in these races. So our expectations are already set high. So that's one of the things I like about action scenes like this is lay the groundwork ahead of time as a, as a writer and director um, and make sure the audience already knows the expectations. And the scene itself is a lot of fun. The tech is all really cool. It's shot really well. Even though CG is used way too much in this movie, I think generally the landscapes look pretty good. A yep. uh, little, little bit of fan service as the as the Tuscan Raiders find their <laughs> way on the track. That uh, was pretty fun. Um, yeah, Pod Race is one of the one of the highlights of the of the movie for sure. And I, we were talking about the sound design, by the way. How yes. cool do the do the Pod Racers sound? They're, they so, sound so fucking cool. They sound great. And um, one of the, one of the things I was always curious about as a kid was all those little switches that he's always playing with on his on his pod racer. There's a little alien language that comes up. I have to assume it's Huddy's. Um, there's the alien languages. There's all the switches and dials and buttons and stuff. I just love the look of the interior of it, too. It looks so real and feels so authentic. Loved it. Sorry, I cut you off. You go no, ahead. awesome. I loved it. This is, this is my big problem um, with the pod race. Mm. Okay, so bear with me. I'm here. I I want to start off right now. I understand why this whole scene plays out the way it does, but this really bugged me upon watching this with a more critical view. Anakin's pod racer is so fast that it can overcome its false start, the coupling coming out, the sabotage by Sebulba, and the constant battering, and he barely wins. They have numerous shots of him speeding past, like not crawling past, blowing past the other pod racers. Yet he can't seem to pass Sebulba in the same way. So if Sebulba's pod is just as fast, wouldn't he be as far ahead as he was, as Anakin was behind? He'd be long gone. But if Anakin's is as fast as they show, think about this. If it had been a fair race, how far ahead he would have been to one. Mm -hmm. Like they show him, he is so far behind in that false start, yet he catches up to them with zero problems. That's true. So I understand that you have to do that for the dramatic stakes to have him overcome stuff. But at the same time, his pod is so completely overpowered. Yeah. Just just what I noticed breaking I down have, breaking down the race. I have no rebuttal whatsoever to any of that. I've, <laughs> I've genuinely never even considered it. My mind in the in this scene always just reverts back to being a three year old. My mind just always <laughs> goes to Ooh, pretty pods. Like, ooh, what do you think those buttons do? Oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> I am just I'm just a three year old during the scene. Yeah. So I had not I had not considered uh, the uh, the physics of overcoming a ship that's should be the same speed as you, um, but now I have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm leaving Tatooine. I'm now going to skip over everything in the middle, and you can circle back to it later if there's anything that you want to talk about. Um, 
on as long as we're leaving Tatooine, does that mean we're not going to be talking midichlorians? I'm not talking midichlorians. I, I if you want it. if if you want to go on it, go right ahead. I I don't have anything. I mostly just wanted to get your take on it because I know that this is a this is a a large problem some people have with this movie. That's never really bothered me. Maybe it's just because I grew up on the you, film. You grew up with it. That's why yeah. you don't have a problem with it. I have a massive problem with it. Yeah, just I, because it demystifies something which is intentionally mystical. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's a fine criticism. I just. I I under I'm not, I shouldn't say that I I'm not trying to imply that I don't understand why people don't like midi chlorians I do get it I, I just never understood why it's as big a deal as it is because as we have clearly laid out there is a lot to dislike about this movie there's a laundry list of problems with it and midi chlorians is like it's mentioned in like two fucking scenes and it's just never bothered me yeah but it's 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 canon breaking for people that grew up with the with the original trilogy. The force for for you, the force has always had midichlorians. That's what you grew up with, so that's why you don't have a problem with it. Mm. For us, we were taught that the force is something magical and mystical that you tap into, that select people are a part of. That it's it's all it, it's something magical and mystical. Midichlorians rips that away completely, and so for for my generation for for people my age and around my age that grew up with this and the and the hopes and dreams of of being a Jedi and all those kind of things the fantasies and all that that's gone. Midichlorians wrecked it. Wrecked it. it Only other thing, I'm it, sorry. Go, go, go ahead. ahead. No, please go I, ahead. I was about to get off midichlorians, so finish your thought. It's basically like if somebody if um Fuck. It's like if J.K. Rowlands made another book and explained that uh, the only reason that all the wizards and witches have uh, magical powers is because they have glorians inside themselves. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Let's let's live in that uh, imaginary world where J.K. Rowling has ruined the Harry Potter franchise after the fact. Let's let's live in that imaginary reality for a second. I haven't seen those other ones. Do they do they wreck the lore of Harry Potter? Uh, there's there's I don't know if it would be considered the same level as of, of offense. I would have to ask Jordan, who has uh, feet in both the Star Wars and Harry Potter camps. But there's a moment in the second Fantastic Beast movie, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and I can't believe I'm talking about this right now, um, where the spell Obliviate, which, if you recall, uh, Hermione uses to uh, wipe parents. memories of her parents. Yeah. There's a moment in the first Crimes of Grindelwald movie where one of the human characters is Obliviated, so he has the, the main characters wiped from his memory. At the beginning of the second movie, he's back, and has all his memories, and he says, oh, well, that spell only works on negative memories, and I only had positive memories of you guys. Just, oh, so Hermione's parents uh, didn't have any <laughs> didn't have any positive memories of Hermione. They just had all their negative memories erased, or do I have that backwards? It doesn't matter. They, it, com it completely ruined, it, it, com it changes the nature of one of the spells, which has played a big role in one of the other movies. It, Does that, that make sense? That is along the same lines, yeah. but not at the same level. Not even close because in case you can't tell that bothers me <laughs> yes so take and i i probably like star wars a little bit better than harry so Potter. take how much you're bothered 
Yeah. And in no, and not even lying, multiply it by 10. And yeah. that gives you an idea of what my generation feels about midichlorians. That's what we're talking about. And I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not exaggerating. That's, that's what it is for us. Mm. Other thing I was going to say on Tatooine before we get off is for the second week in a row, I get to complain about uh, some heavy-handed Jesus imagery um, with uh, Anakin being the chosen one, there not being a father, he's going to come back and free the slaves, etc., etc., etc. George Lucas is super original. Okay, that's that's everything I have to say on Tatooine. Okay. I'm not I don't really have much to say about Coruscant. I don't really want to discuss the Senate. The only thing about the Senate, uh did you see the ET creatures in the Senate? I don't think I did. There there is There's uh ET creatures in there? Yes. <laughs> because George Lucas is like isn't he like really good friends with Steven Spielberg or best, uh, yeah, Be- best friends? Best yeah. friends. Yeah. 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 So there are there if next time you watch it, uh, I think it's shortly after the uh, non-confidence vote. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, I, just, I drifted off there for a for, th- for those that obviously this is only for Sam, <clears throat> but um, there is a my hand is one of the platforms. Yep. So the the focus of the of this of the shot is this platform. Mm-hmm. They're down here. Okay. So they're they're in the background and a little bit lower, but they are completely visible if you know where to look. Like okay. they are the only other platform that is in focus in the shot. And it's about a four or five second shot. And there's two huh. two or three of them on the platform. And they'll oh, be on the lookout for that next year's watch. Yeah, you will see them no problem. And I have a little Easter egg about about those characters when we get to trivia. Mm-hmm. Uh other than that, don't care. Fuck it. I don't even want to talk about Yoda. I don't want to talk about Mace Windu. I'm good. Unless yeah, you unless uh, you do. I, I think one of the things this movie does wrong is that it has far too much fan service crammed into it. I don't think we should see Yoda. I don't think we should see C-3PO. I don't think we should see R2. I think the fan service should start and end with Obi-Wan being in the movie and the Tusken Raiders at the pod race. No, I disagree. Uh, you ha- Mace Windu, you don't need, but Yoda, you do. Yoda, you need you. You have to. He's considered the greatest Jedi, and you have the Jedi Council. You have to have him there. I don't know if we need as much of him. Does he need to be he, like the I'm, leader I'm, of leader? He yes, he's considered the greatest Jedi. Of course, he's the leader of leaders. Yeah, I just I don't. Let me put it this way: If we can imagine a world where these movies didn't exist already, does he need to be a figurehead? Like he can still be a very talent. He can still be the most talented Jedi of all time, but. He's always struck me as a person who, uh, or as a being, I guess, who prefers peace over war at all times. And the Jedi Council is basically a war room, is it not? Uh, That's getting into Star Wars canon that I can't accurately answer. Yeah, I'm mostly just spitballing here. I just, let let me put it this way. I, I could have used less of Yoda in this movie. He's already not in the ton. I was I, like, I just, "Wow!" I, I'm like, I could use less of Yoda in the other movies. Give me this. Okay, yeah, give fine. me this amount of Yoda in the in all of them. That's fair. That's a fair assessment. Yeah, I can get on board with that. Okay. Uh, basically, all I really, I only want to touch on two things: one important and one shitty. Mm. I want to touch. I want to go a little bit more in depth on the duel of the fates lightsaber battle. Mm-hmm. And how utterly ridiculous the rest of the final battle is. The war. Both on the ground and in space. 
So please, I'm happy to go there with you. Okay. So the three-way lightsaber fight between Darth Maul, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Quagga Jinn, arguably for me, arguably one of the best lightsaber battles in the entire series, in mm-hmm. the entire Star Wars thing. It's now, granted, it's also heightened because of this incredible Star Wars theme over top of it. Yeah. It is rousing. I remember being in the theater losing my fucking mind over how good this theme is and how great the start this lightsaber battle was. It is expertly choreographed. Everything is believable except the ending. Now, this is again just it's minor. You have Obi-Wan Kenobi hanging on for dear life to this outcropping thing in this <laughs> big empty shaft. That the Lucas... geometry of lightsaber yeah. battles is always silly. That's <laughs> always... fine. There's an infinite number of walkways in the Star Wars universe. Yeah. But what bothers me, and I never picked up on it again until this watch, because again, I'm looking at it critically, but he is fairly far down in that shaft because Maul can't reach him with his lightsaber. Remember, he well, he probably could if he just bent down, but he's, he's swinging his lightsaber, creating the sparks, and it's, I would say, a good, what, four or five feet until uh, Obi-Wan from the from the ledge to Obi-Wan, right? Yeah, if not further. If not further. Yeah, at least I would say at least five feet. Okay. But they show Obi-Wan Kenobi look to his left, and they show what he's looking at, which is Qui-Gon Jinn's lightsaber. Mm. He would not be able to see it! Yeah, it's true. <laughs> He would be able to sense it, though. He would. He, he totally would. <laughs> totally would. But as soon as I saw that, I'm like, what the fuck's he looking at? A wall? <laughs> I'm like, he can't see it. <laughs> That's what you're focusing on in the Duel of the Fates? Yes, because I'm looking at something critically because I've seen this numerous times. That's I'm, fair. I'm okay. looking for things. So, like I said, minor uh, just, like I said, minor quibble. It it didn't bother me. I was just looking for something fun to point out. Uh, also, it's funny to me. Again, um, these Jedi have uh, lightning quick reflexes, but uh, Obi Wan flying himself up and flipping over Darth Maul is too much for Maul to react to. Yep. <laughs> as well as force grabbing the lightsaber and getting cut in half, he can't block that. That was far too quick for his reflexes, uh, and then gets cut in half. Yeah, I think when even when Qui-Gon is done in, uh, it's initially because he gets uh, the butt of the lightsaber in the face, right? Yeah, it's a double yeah, hit. He just goes, ooh, and he has a moment where he's disoriented. And he's just like, yeah, you're a Jedi. You're, you're, I think you can you can do okay. You can still defend yourself. Yeah. All good. So, like I said, minor quibbles. But the 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 entire the lightsaber battle, the the dual edge lightsaber, mind blowing at the time. By the way, I'm when that got dropped in the trailer instant hard on for everybody even though i hadn't had an experience with star wars before this movie imagine being three and seeing this <laughs> this was just the prettiest twirliest colors <laughs> and <laughs> and i watch this movie now at how old am i 24 yeah sure let's go with that uh i watch this movie at 24 years old and when i'm watching it i'm thinking fun music and pretty twirly colors i am just i am reverted to a state of being a child during Duel of the Fates. It is a mystical transportation that this scene takes me on. I may be overstating it, but I don't really care. Uh, I have so much fun during Duel of the Fates. The choreography is super fun. 
we are not yet at a point in the prequels where the acrobatics begin to take away from the mm-hmm. uh, from the duel. Uh, in particular, the battle uh, in the conclusion of Revenge of the Sith uh, really goes crazy with some of the spectacle of the acrobatics, and it begins to take away from it. I think this fight is like the pinnacle. It's where George Lucas got it right with the lightsaber fighting. It's right in the sweet spot. We've come a long way from Obi-Wan versus Darth Vader, where they have like three or four pokes at each other before old man Obi-Wan dies. Um, And we're far away from the acrobatics. We're right there in the sweet spot. So um, in particular, um, the first clash that Obi-Wan and Darth Maul have after Qui-Gon gets stabbed, Mm -hmm. uh, the camera just lingers for like, 10 seconds on this crazy bout of choreography right when he comes out of those uh those like red barrier things which also shouldn't be there (laughs) (laughs) doesn't matter (laughs) it doesn't matter it doesn't need to be analyzed there's like 10 seconds in a row where this crazy choreography is all in camera and it looks so fucking cool and i nerd out over it every time i don't want to go too much into it because it's honestly upsetting to me we have this incredibly serious, incredibly well choreographed, incredibly well thought out, and incredibly entertaining Duel of the Fates lightsaber battle. And it is intercut with this disgustingly jokey, completely hokey, and utterly fucking ridiculous ground battle and space battle with Jar Jar Binks and Jake Lloyd, or Jar Jar Binks and Anakin Skywalker at the forefront. Let's try spinning. That's a good trick. Another line which just puts me in a full-body cringe the second I hear it. So all the goofy antics by Jar Jar are ridiculous. He is promoted to general for some reason. Um, Fine, whatever. Manny, have you heard the theory that Jar Jar Binks was secretly supposed to be a Sith Lord? Yes. Have you heard this fan theory? Yes. I... There are moments in this final battle. There, there's one shot in particular where he has a gun attached to his leg, or he has like a like a part of an assault droid attached to his yeah. leg, and he keeps accidentally shooting the people around him. Yeah, I'll admit, in that moment, I'm thinking, how can he do this if he's not a Sith Lord? <laughs> I am truly convinced in that moment. Fine, but we know that there's only two. There's only two Sith at any one time. Ooh, true. Yeah. So, can always two there are. Always two there are. Um, and then Anakin, by dumb luck, blows up the entire command center for the droid army. Yeah, these these two scenes, both, I think, I mean, they suffer from a lot of problems, but, I mean, the same problem in both is that our two protagonists in these two situations dumb luck themselves into victory. Yeah. That that doesn't feel good. We don't. We don't want to see that, especially not twice. They just yeah. both accidentally win. Yeah. That isn't, that isn't stakes. That isn't drama. No. No. Hate that's that. that's comedy. Yep. And this is not good comedy. Hate it. That's kind of everything I wanted to talk about with Star Wars The Phantom Menace, Sam. Um, yeah. I mean, all I have, the only note, this is literally the only line I have written about the final act, uh, other than Duel of the Fates. It just says the final battle is confusing, convoluted, and unfocused. That's the, 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 I still, I've seen this movie 50 times probably, and I can't tell you what the plan is, uh, what the plan is in the final battle of the movie. And I don't really care, honestly. Yep. 
Um, what else do I have on this? I don't think a whole lot. <laughs> I had a note on the title crawl um, <laughs> just off the beginning that we kind of skipped past. But uh, the second that the word taxation is written in the title <laughs> crawl, they, they already fucked up. That's just we need to go back and do a rewrite. That's, <laughs> we have already fucked up like four words into the title crawl. Uh, yeah, that's basically it. I think we, we went pretty in-depth. So. Okay. Awesome. I got some quick trivia. I kept it short. Uh, you already mentioned Liam Neeson was so eager to be in the film he signed on without having read the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, Qui-Gon Jinn's communicator is a redecorated Gillette Sensor Excel razor for women. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, Natalie Portman missed the premiere party in New York City because she had to go home to study for her high school final exams. Oh. Hmm. Um... Jake Lloyd has said that he retired from acting because of the trauma he experienced after playing Anakin Skywalker. According to Lloyd, other children constantly teased him about the role, for example, making lightsaber sounds whenever he walked by. Lloyd also said that the situation was made worse because, in his opinion, the film did not meet fans' expectations. Despite this, Lloyd has reprised reprised the role of Anakin in several video games and has appeared at Star Wars conventions and events. Money talks. <clears throat> sure does. Um, the script explains that the reason Watto is always flying is that he is crippled. Look closely, and you can see that one foot is longer than the other. Oh. He also talks out of the side of his mouth because the broken tusk slurs his words. Huh. That's that's good character design. Yeah. I, uh, I, I read somewhere that um, <laughs> there's a lot of... Um, biologists that say he shouldn't be able to fly just from his body weight to wing ratio. Yep. And George Lucas has explained that away by saying that because of Watto's diet, uh, his belly contains a large amount of helium. Nice. So he is more blimp than bird. <laughs> well, also, technically, in a physical sense, bees shouldn't be able to fly. What shouldn't be able to fly? Bees. Oh, yeah. I've heard that, too. Yeah. Because of the body to wing ratio. Yeah. Bees are an enigma. Um, I didn't. I didn't have time to check out this Easter egg after I found it. Um, but uh, flying around Coruscant in the traffic, you can see the Starship Enterprise. Really? Yes. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Um, reportedly, after a lightsaber scene, Ewan McGregor could be overheard muttering, "Quote: Do I want to be in Star Wars? Fuck yeah!" <laughs> End quote. Nice. Uh, here's the uh, trivia on the uh, ETs. Uh, in the Senate scene, one of the pods containing creatures that resemble ET, an obvious tribute to George Lucas's friend Steven Spielberg. Author James Lucuno fleshed out this group of aliens in his Star Wars novel Cloak of Deception. They are from the planet Brodo Agosi, as- no, Brodo Asogi, and they are represented by Senator Greblebs. Spielberg spelled backwards. Oh my god. <laughs> George Lucas is such a nerd. That shouldn't be a surprise, but he really is. Uh you and I actually, actually I remember hearing this a long time ago when the movie came out and I totally forgot. But Ewan McGregor, who plays Obi-Wan Kenobi, is the nephew of Dennis Lawson, who played Rebel Pilot Wedge Antilles in the original trilogy. Hmm. Uh Terrence Stamp, uh Senator Valoran, uh yes. disliked working on the film. He clarified that he had been looking forward to a scene with Natalie Portman, but was dismayed to find out that Portman wasn't on set that day. He was asked to act towards a piece of paper taped to the wall instead, which he described as, quote, very boring, 
end quote. He declined to reprise his role in the sequel, saying that, quote, actors prefer to work with actors, end quote. Also, when he complained to a producer about how little he was being paid, he was told he would get a present from George Lucas. The present turned out to be a cheap Star Wars children's stencil set. <laughs> okay, that's, that last part's kind of hilarious. <laughs> I like to think George Lucas was trolling him. Me too. Okay, that uh, so the, that's all the trivia I have. There are thousands of other things about this movie that you could look into. I wanted to keep it to ones that were probably a little bit lesser known and yeah. more fun. and I mean, we covered a ton when we were talking about it as well. Like, there's a lot of mythology behind this movie. Mm-hmm. I have some casting what-ifs for you. Please. All right. These three people were considered for the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Tim Roth, Harry Connick Jr., and Hugh Jackman. I I feel that the Ewan McGregor casting as Obi-Wan is perfect. I agree. Uh, another person that was considered for the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi, which would have been pretty good, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, that would have been pretty good. I, I can't can't find fault with that one. Uh, probably a little old at the time, probably I would pretty imagine. Cl- pretty close, yeah. It would be borderline. Again, I like the casting of Ewan McGregor. All right, I've got some casting what-ifs for Qui-Gon Jinn. Kurt Russell. No. <laughs> I agree. Kyle McLaughlin. Don't know who that is. All right. Vin Diesel. I'm going to pass on that. Remember all, right. remember all the things we said about Liam Neeson, uh, about him being wise and having this aura about him? Reverse that, everything about it. Perfect. Vin Diesel. I love that you just said wise and aura because I've got three for you to seriously consider. Okay, I'll get my pondering cap on. All right, let's go with this one first. Tom Hanks. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen... Does Tom Hanks ever play like a teacher of some kind? I, I guess he, he's um he, he's Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> the captain in Saving Private Ryan. So yeah, he, he's got a sort of leadership quality about him. In general, I think he's a little bit too likable, I guess. Fair. I d I don't know. I mean, I'm not gonna complain about putting Tom Hanks in Star Wars, are you kidding me? Alright, you ready for another one? Yeah, let's go. Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Yep, I'm sign me up for that one. Yep, and here's the last one that I really like: Denzel Washington. Yeah. Um, okay, so out of those three, who would I like? Let's see. Um, I'm gonna go Denzel. I think my uh, favorite. I think my favorite of those three is Morgan Freeman, probably. Mine's Denzel. Yeah, I think both of those are good choices. I think Tom Hanks also would be well suited. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm leaning Morgan Freeman personally. All right, I got a casting what if for Darth Maul that I think <sighs> that I think you'll find interesting. Give it to me, Benicio del Toro. I've I've heard this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, but I mean, like you said about Ray Park, his martial arts background is really an asset, especially to this final battle. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to give Darth Maul any lines, why? Why give him to an actor? Give him to a martial artist. That's why he left. Del Toro left the film after George Lucas took most of Maul's lines out of the film. Yeah. So originally, Maul had a lot more to say. Mm-hmm. And I've got three directing what-ifs. 
which all would be an improvement over George Lucas, I bet. Number one, and by number one, I mean the first one, not the top choice, <laughs> Ron Howard. Yeah, I'd be here for a Ron Howard uh, Star Wars movie. I mean, oh, maybe not because we wound up getting one. Yep. <laughs> and it was Solo. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next up, Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, I mean, especially as somebody who does a lot of work with CGI, I think that'd be a great fit. I agree. And the last one, the greatest what if possible. Spielberg? You bet. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how I guessed that, probably from you saying the greatest what if ever. I mean, obviously from a quality perspective, there's no replacement for the greatest filmmaker of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, from a fit perspective like for like fitting the actual role i think i think bob zemeckis would be a really good choice i agree i don't while i would obviously love spielberg to do this i don't know how much better he could have made it with this fucking script he's working with yeah agreed he definitely heavy rewrites yeah heavy rewrites and he would have recast some of the parts Mm -hmm. or heavy rewrites (laughs) all right favorite quote this actually hurt my heart. I only have two. Same. I, this is, I, I really like this movie, and I only have two. <laughs> wow. Okay. I've got – here's mine, and I'm not going to bother doing the voice. It's Yoda. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. Yeah, that's fine. And I've got Qui-Gon Jinn. The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. That's a good one. That's actually, that's actually a good one. I wish I had that one. Um, my two are, for some reason, it's something in the line reading, and anytime I can get a good line reading in this movie, I'll take it. It's uh, when they're underwater in Naboo, and Liam Neeson says, there's always a bigger fish. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. I love that one. And uh, when they're on Tatooine, uh, when uh, Liam Neeson is going back to his ship, uh, Obi-Wan says to him, why do I get the feeling that we've picked up another pathetic life form? I like that line. All right. What do you got? Uh, there's always a bigger fish. Always makes me giggle. All right. I've got Yoda. Fear is a path to the dark side. Sure. Uh, favorite scene? I have two. Same. And they're probably the same, too. <laughs> I got the pod race and duel of the fates. Oh, weird. Because my two are actually the pod race and duel of the fates. <laughs> it would have been better if you'd said, mm, mine are different. Duel of the fates and pod race. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the introduction to Jar Jar Binks. No. <laughs> uh, water in Naboo. My favorite scene is duel of the fates. Yep, same. All right. Closing credits. Are there any Oscar-worthy performances in this film? Oscar-worthy. Oscar-worthy. I don't – I need to ponder that one. My instinct says no. All right. right. (laughs) Get back to me. Yeah, we'll get back to you on that one. Um, Any other aspects of the film that are award-worthy besides the visual effects and the sound? No. I agree. No, there's not. I agree. If you were to take out every aspect of the film except for the pod race and the duel of the fates, I will throw in film editing. Fine. Okay. That's all. Oh, the score. Oh, yeah, but I'm still unclear on whether uh, it's eligible because it reuses some of the material, but... I have to imagine there's enough original material in there for it to be eligible, right? I, I agree. So I have no idea. Okay. Uh, weak so, link. Let's, let's just say score. Yeah. Weak link of the film. Um, much like I've said about movies like, much like I've said about good movies where everything kind of goes right, the easy answer is the director. 
I think there's enough going wrong in this movie where I can just say George Lucas. I, I think he just he had way too much on his plate with this massive undertaking, and the script is bad, the direction is bad, the acting is bad, uh, the CG has aged very terribly. I think he just he just kind of butchered a lot of things. So, George Lucas. Wow, we've never actually thrown a director onto the weak link of a yeah. film before, and I'm with you, because he's the writer and director. Yeah, it, this all falls on him. I think George Lucas is, uh, is the weak link. All right, I'm 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 with you. Excellent answer, because I was going to go Jake Lloyd. Yeah, uh, also fine answer. Is this anyone's career highlight? I mean, Jake Lloyd and Ahmed Best. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they, they kind of got shunned out of the industry after this, so mm-hmm. by default, it's their best. MVP of the film? John Williams, man. Let's go. John Williams. Well done. Well done. I'm with you. home. What will be this film's legacy? I mean, it's got a pretty extensive legacy. It's got very complicated legacy. It'd be difficult to boil down to just one point or, uh, or, or yeah, one sort of bullet point. Um, I would say... It is a massive disappointment, I guess. Mm-hmm. A, a massively disappointing installment in one of the largest franchises in movie history. Yeah, I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. Or, or if I can boil that down even further, um, one of the most disappointing movies of all time. Yes. Yeah, I think that's it. Would you watch this movie again? Hell fucking yeah, I would. <laughs> yes. We're going to watch it again next next may the fourth same yeah i will watch this movie again would you recommend this movie to friends the people i know who would like this movie have already seen it dozens of times so kind of yes kind of no again very person dependent i would say generally yes though no yeah i would recommend watching the pod race scene and the duel of the fates yeah save yourself about an hour and 50 minutes yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, Sam, your final thoughts on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Look, this is a deeply flawed movie, in case we haven't made that abundantly clear. This movie's a mess from the fourth word of the title crawl. It is, it is an absolute disaster. The writing, the directing, the acting, the CGI. There is a lot of stuff going wrong in this movie. But. <laughs> <laughs> but. This is a movie I grew up on. I fell in love with the pod race scene, Duel of the Fates. I even liked Jar Jar when I was a kid. I fell in love with the characters, even Qui-Gon Jinn, even Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan, even your Queen Amidala's of the world and everyone in between. I loved this universe when I was a kid. And you can't just shake a feeling like that because of something as arbitrary as objective quality. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just, I think if I was to summarize my feelings about Phantom Menace, it would be this. I like it. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) This movie has massive problems. And like I've said and stated numerous times, for people of my age, this was a huge letdown and a, a big lore breaker in regards to the world that they set up in the original trilogy. It's hard for people like myself and, again, people of my generation to look past what this movie did. But this movie on its own has two incredibly well-crafted and incredible moments that I will never forget and will always enjoy. But it can't make up for the rest of the shit around it. Uh, This movie is 
at times painful to sit through, and I'm literally just waiting for the two parts that I like to show up. This movie is okay. I understand why Sam likes it because it's part of his childhood. For the same reason that he probably, hopefully, understands why a movie like Lost Boys means a lot to me. I grew Absolutely. up with. I grew up with it. That's I, a great analogy, actually. I grew up with Lost Boys. Star Wars: Phantom Menace has some serious problems. Sadly, it's not the worst of the films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for next week. Eh? Yeah, ne- next week's gonna be a rough go. Even as a prequel defender. Oh boy, episode two is a rough watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Sam. It's time to rate your movie. I'm scared. Movie. <laughs> but I, I'm scared. But I think I know what you got. Yeah. Um. I. I think this is this is a three. This is like there's there's some deep deep flaws in this movie which there's no getting around but i still like it and i still want to rewatch it and i will continue to rewatch it so it feels like a pretty easy three this is the exception to the rule this is a two for me exception to the rule in regards that i give movies the two that i don't want to rewatch i know that i'm going to rewatch this movie <laughs> i've i've rewatched it like 15 times yeah i know that i'll come back to it but again, I know that I'm going to sit through parts that are hard to sit through, literally just to get to the pod race and to the duel of the fates. And you know what? Uh, one of the aspects I also forgot to kind of touch on is, since I've seen this movie so many times, and I was watching it with Jordan, who also grew up with these films, we're just sitting around having a drink, kind of laughing at the wooden dialogue. Like, we're just we're just having a good time watching it. You know, it's this is a movie, um, I, I know that you don't drink, but this is a movie uh, best enjoyed with a beer, I think, at least for people of my generation. All right, I'll take that in consideration next time I watch it. <laughs> Sam, what's going on next week? Oh, Manny. Oh, Manny, Manny, Manny. <laughs> <laughs> you you have some time to prepare yourself for Attack of the Clones. It's, uh, it's coming, and you're not going to like it. And I barely like... I well, Let me put it this way. I like Attack of the Clones, and I don't even like Attack of the Clones. <laughs> it is It is difficult. So uh, I'm excited for it. I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, maybe I'll bring out the claws next week. The claws? The claws. Oh, maybe, oh yeah. Could be a, like a Spider-Man 3 type of episode. Yeah. Phantom Menace got uh, got the kid gloves a little bit. Yeah. Not 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 too bad. We were we were harsh and fair. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Attack of the Clones might get uh, might get torn into a little maybe bit. I'll, maybe I'll purposely have a bad day right before we record the episode. Please do. <laughs> So we can so we can replay what happened in Spider Man Three. Yeah, the last time that you had a bad day and we talked about a bad movie, glorious things. <laughs> so please make that happen. For okay, me. I'll what I'll do is I'll call T Bone just before I come over and I'll get him to get me thin lipped. So next week, episode one hundred fifty six, is Attack of the Clones. I am very excited. 
Awesome. So please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you give us a five-star rating and a positive review, it does increase the profile of our podcast, allows more people to find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can email us at sammanymoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at the Samuel Manny Movie Podcast. We look forward to hearing from you. We look forward to hearing from you about this episode and any other episodes. If you have anything to say, we would love to hear from you. We love feedback. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. For the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast, I'm Manny Manuel. And Misa Sam Reimer. Adios!